and hello and thank you for joining us. This is Leah Freeberg from Fluke Reliability. We appreciate having you here with us today for this best practices webinar. So a little introduction. You probably know Fluke as a test tools provider and you may also know that we produce some of the industry's favorite yellow reliability tools from infrared cameras to vibration meters. But you may not know that many of the measurements that our tools collect now flow automatically into many EAM systems of record. It happens via a framework that we call Fluke Excelix. Our goal at Fluke Reliability is to better connect asset management data and teams with asset management systems so that we can drive connected knowledge. And that, of course, depends greatly on best practices in condition-based maintenance. So that's why this series of webinars explores reliability maintenance strategies, and that's where we feature speakers from a variety of expert backgrounds. Before the presentation, I have a few housekeeping items to go over. Today's session is being recorded, so the phone lines will be muted to minimize background noise. But we will be answering questions during the session and afterward in, in Q&A. So take a minute now and find that questions tool in your GoToWebinar dashboard. Look for the gray bar. And please feel welcome to submit questions as we go because I will share as many of them during the presentation as time allows for. If we have unanswered questions at the end, our presenter will follow up with you afterward. If you'd like to receive the slides from today's presentation, there will be a survey that pops up afterward and just answer that question yes in the survey. We'll also send you a certificate of attendance after today's webinar. You'll see a question about that on the survey as well. And lastly, there'll be a recording of this webinar in full available within a day or two on the excelix.com website. And that's that for housekeeping. So now for the main event. Today, I am so pleased to have with us James Kovacevic presenting on unshrouding the mystery of rarely used parts, determining how to stock and manage parts that are rarely used. This is going to be an hour well spent tackling an issue that plagues many maintenance and reliability and operations teams. So let's meet our speaker. James Kovacevic is a passionate and driven asset management professional based in Windsor, Ontario, Canada. James serves as principal instructor at Eruditio and host of the Rooted in Reliability podcast. He also founded HP Reliability, which is dedicated to helping manufacturers attain maximum profitability while ensuring quality jobs and thriving communities. Prior to his present ventures, James worked as an asset care manager at uh, Diageo, maintenance manager of RS Technologies, the maintenance supervisor of global composite manufacturing, and numerous others. James' many certifications include certified maintenance and reliability professional, CMRP, maintenance management professional, MMP, and certified asset management assessor, CAMA. He also studied business and commerce at St. Clair College. So welcome, James, and thank you for being with us today. And in addition to all of that, you are also a contributing author to the new book, Design for Maintainability. So can you tell us a little bit more about that project? Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Leah, for the great introduction. So the book here, Design for Maintainability, for those that can see, um, really talks about how to design assets for maintainability, for ease of maintainability when it's in the field, how to design your spare parts stocking strategy before it's even deployed in the field, um, really, how do we go about making sure we're reducing life cycle costs through maintainability of those assets? 
obviously that has to be balanced with reliability. So there is some topics in here around design for reliability as well and kind of how they fit together to ultimately give us good availability of our assets. Right? There is a sister book to this, uh, Design for Reliability as well, that was published a couple years ago. So if you have both, now you got all the tools you need to design your assets for reliability and maintainability. Excellent. Sounds like a great pair. Well, why don't you take it away, James? All right. Excellent. Thank you. All right. So thank you, everyone, for taking the time to join me today. We're going to talk about spare parts, more specifically, rarely used spare parts. And this is a topic that is a challenge in a lot of organizations. It doesn't matter which client I'm working with. They all have this problem with rarely used parts. How do we stock them? How do we know if we need to stock them? What do we do with them if we have too much and so on and so forth? And it's a really big challenge for multiple reasons. They eat up capital. They take time to manage. We end up throwing a lot of them out in the long run. So how do we strike the right balance to make sure we have the parts to support our uptime, but also not just throw money away? So before we dive into all those tools to get there, let's talk about what we generally see in storerooms. So if we look behind the curtain in storerooms, what we'll generally find is about 60% of our order values are wrong. Now, what do I mean by order values? Min, maxes, those are incorrect, right? Often they're incorrect because most organizations just guess at what they should be. You know, mechanic asks for three, so let's use that as our min. We'll double, double that to get our max and we're good to go. Or, you know, we use eight a year, so let's go with eight as a min. You know, those types of approaches are used and that's not the right way to do it. We'll talk about some of the ways to address that as well. You know, about 30% of the parts in our storeroom will, will never be used, right? These might be the rarely used parts, the insurance parts, or parts that may have been on an OEM uh, recommended spares list, right? But there is really no basis for them being on there. So as a result, these will throw away at the end of the life cycle of that asset, or they'll go bad within the, or within that time period, and we'll have to scrap them and so on and so forth. From a wrench time perspective, about 25% of our maintenance technicians' time are generally spent looking for parts, right? Now, if we have good planning and scheduling, good kitting, we can reduce that, but most organizations spend a lot of time looking for parts. About 50% of open work orders are sitting there because we don't have the right parts or we don't have the, we're waiting on the parts to be received, all those different things. So a lot of our backlog, once again, parts related. And then on average, it takes 251 days from when we set up a part in our CMMS to when it's first actually used. So that tells us it's a long time. Do we need to be stocking all these things, right? And that's what we're gonna talk about today. All right, so all these may sound familiar. All these provide a bunch of issues for the business. If we have the wrong ordering values, for example, we might be ordering too much or too often or not frequently enough and so on and so forth. That 30% of parts, some of those are insurance spares we hope we never have to use, I understand that, but the majority of them are things that we could have avoided that getting rid of at the end of the life cycle, all right? Open work orders, how many jobs do you have out there that you have to get done, the equipment's failing, but we're waiting on parts, all right? So those are all major challenges for the organization. We're gonna talk about addressing those, but specifically, mainly around the rarely used parts. What is a rarely used part? 
well, there's three main types of parts that we're going to talk about throughout the presentation here. The first one is active. Active parts are generally predictable in usage. We have good data, we have good trends, and we're generally using greater than roughly 10 per month. Right? These might be specific bearings, belts, so on and so forth across the organization. From an inventory perspective, they're going to account for anywhere between 5 to 15% of our inventory in our storeroom. These are things that we can use traditional um, tools to help set the min-max, those sorts of things. So we're managing that inventory appropriately because we have that data, we have that predictability. Commodity parts, those are parts generally short lead times, can be resolved fairly quickly if we have an issue where we're out of stock, um, but we're still not consuming them as much as an active part, all right? They generally account for about 5% of our parts in our storeroom. And then we have our rarely used. Now, what I'm going to classify as rarely used is less than one per month, right? Some, some individuals may say it's got to be, you know, less than six a year or something of that nature. The reason I go with one per month is if I don't have that usage history of at least one per month, it's very hard to use some of the traditional forecasting tools we have available for us, available to us, because we don't have the data set, all right? Now, interestingly enough, in this rarely used, about 40 to 60 percent of those, depending on the organization and the industry, have no usage in the last three years. Right? So not only does it account for 80 to 90 percent of our storeroom, at least half of those have not been used in at least three years. So there's lots of parts that we have no data or recent data to help us predict, do we need to stock this, what expected usage values, and so on and so forth. All right, so lots of challenges there. Now. Before I move on, any questions so far about the different types of spares? Because this is going to come up as we work through the rest of the presentation. That is a great cue for the audience. No one has typed in a question yet, but audience, remember you are welcome to type in questions throughout because if we can answer them in a timely manner, we learn more. So feel free. All right, perfect. Well, while you guys are thinking about that, Leah, if you can, can you trigger the first poll? Curious to see how you guys feel about the right level of spares in your store. Okay, audience, you should now see the poll available to you. And if you cannot click the buttons, then you may need to resize your screen to make it uh, accessible. But you've got your question in front of you, your first question today. Do you feel you have the right level of stock for rarely used items? And you only get one choice. So is it we have too much, we don't have enough, we have the right amount or fairly, I have no idea. And obviously the responses from you here will help James tailor his presentation as we go. So we'd like to get about three quarters of the audience voting. We're almost there. I'm gonna give it about, I don't know, five more seconds. Um, and then we're gonna share the results with everyone. All right, just another couple votes and we're there. Okay, sharing the responses, James. 35% say we have too much, 17% say we don't have enough, 19% say we have the right amount, and 29% say they don't know. So how does that jive with what you typically hear? All right, so the 39% for we have too much does not surprise me at all. Um, similarly with the we don't have enough, uh, that's not surprising at all either. Oftentimes we find organizations are one of the extremes 
And sometimes they're at both extremes within the same organization based on the type of rarely used part. And we'll talk about that in a bit. It's a cost bias thing that we have. Yep. For the others, the right amount, and I have no idea, you know, sometimes we have no idea because we don't experience stockouts or we're not being pushed by finance because we have a lot of stuff sitting there for a long period of time. So sometimes people aren't aware of the opportunities or the challenges that exist there. So nothing too surprising there. Okay, I do have some comments coming in on the question line about the poll. So I've got people saying that they have both too much of the wrong stuff and not enough of what they actually need. Um, some people saying it's probably a mixture of all four. Some items are overstocked, some are understocked. And then I have your first question, if you're ready. All right, go ahead. Okay. How would you address rarely used parts that have very long lead times, such as eight or nine weeks? I bet you're going to talk to this, aren't you? I am going to talk to that. Uh, so if I don't answer that question when we get towards a little bit more through the presentation, let me know and I'll bring it back up. But we are going to talk through that specific scenario because that is very, very common. All right. Now for the, other, for the other comments about not having or having too much, not having enough, that's the whole right size and inventory. <laughs> and some of the tools we're going to talk about today will help you address that even for the commodity and active items, not just the rarely used items. Excellent. Great job, audience. And back to you, James. All right. Thank you. So we're going to continue on. So some of the challenges with rarely used items is they typically have a high cost. All right. To the exact question that came up, you know, it might be a very high cost item that's got an extremely long lead time. Because of that lead time, we end up stocking it just in case because having that $60,000 gearbox is better than being down for eight weeks. So that is one of the trade-offs that we're going to talk about in a little bit. Now, typically those rarely used parts make up the majority of the costs in our storerooms. We're not seeing a lot of costs for those commodity active items, those certain things. Um, we definitely have that built in. Now, what's interesting is I mentioned cost bias earlier. And what I mean by that is organizations have a tendency to stock more of the less expensive parts and less of the expensive parts, which is why I think you guys said I have a little bit of too much and a little bit not enough. And I think that cost bias is part of that reason. Right. Some of the other challenges with rarely used parts is we have the emotions attached to these things. We may have been yelled at at the past for not having the part and having an extent, extended breakdown. We've got the cost bias piece working against us as well. Right. So we got yelled at before. We're not going to get yelled at again. So we're going to stock everything. We also have competing initiatives. And what I mean by this is you have project management going on when we're getting a new asset. We have maintenance management going on, trying to get ready for that new asset. We also have accounting, trying to make sure that, you know, the books look okay, we don't have slow moving or obsolete inventory on hand, because that all impacts various metrics, especially for a publicly traded company. We also have a lack of data or trends. So a lot of these rarely used items we don't have good consistent lead times. We'll ask a vendor and they'll say six to 12 weeks. That's a long, that's a big sway, swing in that lead time and that's gonna have a huge impact on what we have to stock. Same thing with usage. If we have no usage in the last three years, does that mean we're gonna have no usage again for the next three years or are we gonna consume three next month? We don't have that, we don't have the ability to tell that. And because of the lack of that data, standard forecast models and distributions won't work for us and forecasting what we need to stock. There's also a risk of obsolescence. 
will you actually be able to get that part in the future from the vendor? And I know some organizations will purposely start stocking some of these rarely used parts towards the end of their life cycle because they know they're not going to be able to get them in the future. So once again, it's a trade-off there. And then the big question that we see with these is, will it actually work when you need it? What do I mean by that? If I have a big motor and it's sitting in your store, will it actually start up and run when I need it to? You know, we have lots of things for these spare parts we need to consider. How are we storing them? So these rarely used items, we bought this really big gearbox, super long lead time, super expensive, that sort of thing. But if we never actually rotate it, now the bearings in there may be shot with false Brunelli. So now we're gonna have issues with it. If we're not rotating that oil, has that oil absorbed moisture over time and is it corroded the inside of it? There's all these different things we need to consider. If it's a consumable type thing, will there be an expiration? Are there firmware updates that we're making on our equipment that's running, but not updating our spare parts either? So when we take that spare part out and plug it into the machine, it will no longer operate the way it was supposed to because the firmware is out of date. So those are all things we need to consider with these rarely used parts. And that's one of the challenges with it. There's all these things we got to work through. So with that being said, the active and commodity spares are pretty easy to manage, all right? We're gonna use some basic spare parts formulas for these things. We're either gonna use reorder point planning, which means we have a min and a max. We hit our min, we reorder, bring us up to our max. We may also use something like demand-based planning, and if you have a good spare parts management program and a good work management program, you can do this. We're creating reservations for parts, only ordering what we need, that sort of thing, right? Now, if we have a basic example here, you know, there's some formulas there for those types of parts you can use. And if we're gonna do some sort of forecasting, then we have moving average, exponential smoothing, we have predictive models. And I'm gonna talk to these for a minute because these end up feeding into our problem with rarely used, part, rarely used parts. So the moving average model, really it's just a succession of averages derived from successive segments. So we're really just looking at a series of rolling past six months and it's re constantly reevaluating what the moving average is for those and it's giving us a value of what we're expected to use next month that's best used when we have good consistent data stable demand that sort of thing exponential smoothing is similar the only difference is is it weights each one of those segments a little bit differently it gives more value or more weight to the most recent values than the old ones this is great if we have gradually changing uh, demand for our spare parts. But once again, we still need consistent and stable values. We need good, a lot of data points to make this work. Those will not work for our rarely used parts. What we have to use for rarely used parts is predictive models. Now, what I mean by predictive models, hopefully you guys are leveraging something like failure modes effect analysis, failure modes effect criticality analysis, RCM, um, those types of things, or even condition-based maintenance, those predictive models will allow us to forecast what are we expected to use now in the future and so on and so forth. And I'll talk through that in a little bit more detail. But the only way we can really drive good results with our rarely used parts is through predictive models. That's where we get our data from. Do we need to stock it or not? All right. Leah, well, yeah, did we get any questions at this up until this point? We have no new questions. Uh, I have a couple questions, but I'm gonna hold on those. You just keep going. All right, perfect. So 
this is what we're going to do for active and commodity spares, but those rarely used ones, we've got a lot more work to do. So from a rarely used parts perspective, there's multiple pieces we need to have in place to make this work. We need to understand usage. Now, if we don't have good history for usage, then we got to rely on those predictive models. For an FMEA, for example, what's the probability that this individual part will be used? Right? And if we have multiple failure modes associated with that part, what's the aggregated probability of that usage? Are we able to predict some of these failures? So if we can improve our detectability of these failures, that's gonna help mitigate the risk and we'll be able to stock less of these rarely used parts. We have to understand the consequence of not having this part. So to the question previously, if it's an eight week lead time, what's the consequence of not having this part? Are we shutting down the whole plant? Are we shutting down a support process, partial plant loss, that sort of thing? We need to have that understanding. We also need to have some basic idea of the lead time and pricing for these parts. From there, what we're gonna do is we have to define some risk criteria, right? And that risk criteria is gonna be different for every single organization. I've worked for organizations in the past that didn't have a very big appetite for risk, so they would stock more parts than they would not stock. And as a result, very little acceptable downtime was, was the case for them. However, I've worked with other organizations where if a part cost is over X amount, then we're gonna have that conversation and are we willing to accept the fact that we may not have it, we may have to ex expedite it, but you know, there's that trade-off. From there, we're gonna apply some stocking formulas to those rarely used parts to make sure we have them. Then from there, we'll get the right part, the right quantity, right time, right place, et cetera. So we need multiple pieces of data, usage, predictability, consequence, lead time, pricing. We're gonna use our decision criteria, which is risk-based, as well as a stocking formula. From there, we'll get the right number of parts. So let's talk about risk for a few minutes. So risk-based evaluation criteria, there's lots of different ways to consider this, and this is gonna vary by organization, all right? So I'll give you some examples of what you can use, but you're really gonna have to have a conversation with your leadership team to understand what is the risk we're trying to mitigate by carrying these parts. Now in some organization, organizations we have an issue with lost production, right? There's no workarounds, this is a single point of failure, so on and so forth, so we're gonna lose 50% of our plant capacity if we don't have that. Okay, we understand the risk for that one. Lead time of parts. Now there's two types of risks that we gotta consider with lead time of parts. One is, what is the actual lead time? Is it extremely long or does it swing wildly? You know, sometimes I can get it in five days, other times it's 30 days. That's another type of risk that we need to consider. Usage rates. Do we use these things often? Very rarely. Do we have any data to support usage rates? Or what does the predictive models like our probability and FMEAs tell us for usage? How far in advance are we able to detect these impending failures? If we have good detectability, we have a good predictive maintenance program that's got a good track record, we've probably got more detectability of the impending failures. Therefore, we can scale down a little bit of what we're carrying. Might not be able to get rid of it all, but we can scale it down. Do we have available workarounds? So if this component fails, is there a workaround that maybe it requires one person or two extra people on that process to do it, but we can work around for a short period of time? We wanna know that because that may help us determine do we wanna spend that extra money for those spares. The cost of the part, 
All right, so the cost of the part, if it's a $5 part, there's really no risk there, but if it's a $50,000 or $200,000 part, very different story. Then we also have the risk of failure in the storeroom. If there's a high risk that it's gonna fail in the storeroom, we gotta take that into account. Now, curious if you guys can throw it in the question box, what other risks would you consider in your organization? Well, we actually had a question about that last bullet come in right before you got to the slide. So they were intuiting where you were going to go here. And they want to know if you have any advice for can you ensure that rarely used parts are fit for use when you eventually need them? Yes, you can. You definitely can. There, But it's a proactive approach and it's a, a well-developed approach. So for example, I'm working with one organization right now who is doing a lot to make sure that the motors, pumps, gearboxes that they have in their storeroom are ready to go. So they're rotating motor shafts on a regular basis so we don't get false Brunelling and we move that lubricant around a little bit. They're doing something similar with the gearboxes. They're doing something similar with other components wow. with large bearings. Others actually are looking at how do we manage firmware updates and so on and so forth with those parts in stock. So it can be done, it just requires a concentrated effort. Do they have PMs for those parts? I mean, I imagine they're expensive. So is it is that the level you need to go to? That's what they're doing. They have PMs oh. set up in their CMMS that triggers them to go rotate the motor shafts every three months to okay. check this, this, and this every three months and so on and so forth for all the parts. Okay. You got two comments in. Uh, so some somebody suggests including regulatory compliance in your list of risk. Absolutely. Depending on your industry, that is a huge risk. So definitely want to have that in there if that would cover your industry or company. Mm -hmm. And then someone else suggests, how about the size or amount of storage available? Ah, that is a good one. So I know certain organizations that have on-site storerooms and an off-site storeroom and you know what's out of sight, out of mind becomes an issue. So if you don't have all the room for this, that is definitely a major risk factor. Right, we have limited storage, how do we manage it? Right, or how about parts that are soon to become obsolete or unavailable? Ah, another one, that is that is a good consideration. So if we have that situation, then it's up to us to determine, do we wanna stock these extra parts or are we going to start upgrading our existing equipment? And that ah. becomes another conversation within the organization because that's gonna determine our approach on those. Right, so parts hoarding, is that a thing? It is, it is. <laughs> Okay. All right. I think I think we've tapped out for the moment. You can probably go forward. All right. Perfect. So we have all these issues that we need to work through. We got to understand our risks, right? And then we got to understand some of the consequences, right? If we don't have enough of these parts, we're going to have reduced asset availability. We have lots of production costs. We're going to have those types of things. If we have too many, we're tying up a lot of capital. We're tying up a lot of other costs. We're going to scrap some stuff. Those are all things we need to consider. So how do we manage these rarely used parts? Well, there's a couple things. We can use some of the similar formulas, but we're gonna add a couple tweaks to it. But the first thing we need to ask ourselves is, do we stock based on risk? All right, and I'm gonna walk through some risk-based stocking decisions with you in a moment, but that's the first thing you ask with a rarely used item. Do we stock this based on the risk to the organization? If the answer is no, then that's it, we're done. We're not stocking it. We're gonna set up a part number in our CMMS with the vendor and part number and all that stuff so it's easy to order if we need it. But if the answer is no, it's a zero stock, non-stock item set up in our CMMS. Now, if it is a stock item, 
based on the risk criteria we defined, then we're going to calculate the min, all right? And the min is the probability of usage per year divided by 365 times the lead time in days. But since it is a very long lead item, there's a significant risk to not having that item, so on and so forth, based on our decision criteria, we're gonna add safety stock, all right? That way, no matter what, we're covered. From there, we'll do our EOQ and our min max, and we really are only focused on the next reorder period, right? So for example, if lead time is 62 weeks, what is the probability that we would need one or two parts during that time, right? Then we would only cover, make sure we have enough parts to cover that 26 weeks period of time. We don't wanna try and overstock for 52 weeks, two years, so on and so forth only in that limited cycle of time. So we may have to do some slight modifications to the EOQ to establish our max based on that. We'll talk through that in a moment. Okay. The key here is with the limited data, we're focusing on probabilities instead of usage history. If, you're, if you don't remember back to your early stats days or early stats classes, you're adding probabilities, you're doing those types of things to establish what that the probability of usage per year is, right? whether you have cascading failure modes or separate failure modes and so on and so forth. You gotta get to that level of detail. The other thing we need to consider is the service level. And this is where safety stock comes in, right? What I mean by that is if we have a 50% service level, that means 50% of the time that that part is needed, we're guaranteed to have the part on hand. If we have a 99% service level, that means 99% of the time where we're gonna need that part, we're covered. So we gotta make sure we establish what is the right service level for us as well, right? Now, most organizations don't go 50%. I'll share with you what they normally do. They normally stay somewhere up in the 90, 98, 99 level of areas, all right? So there's two safety stock formulas here we may use for managing these rarely used parts that we're gonna to add to our min. And if it's a predictable usage item, meaning we have data even though it's not the greatest but we know we consume this once every three years it's fairly predictable we're, we're going to use a simple formula like the one on top unfortunately most of our rarely used parts don't have that so we have to go towards an unpredictable safety stock and that is this formula here it's k times the square root of d k is the acceptable coverage so if we want a 98 percent service level we're gonna use the K factor of 2.1 times the square root of D. And D is the average consumption during lead time, so expected usage per year, whether it's in probabilities or based on data, divided by 365 times the maximum lead time. So if I get a vendor that says six to 12 weeks, I'm putting 12 weeks here. All right, we're gonna work through those. That's gonna give us our minimum plus our safety stock. Now, Got one more slide for you and then I'll take some more questions on these things. This is one approach, all right? And this is the standard min ROP formula, which I have here on the left. You have your information here on how it works, but there are some other formulas out there that may help us solve slightly different problems, if you will. Now, if we have a rarely used item that has a wide ranging lead time, six to 12 weeks, or sometimes it's five days, sometimes it's 30 days, that sort of thing. Then we may wanna use this formula here because what it's doing is it's looking at the variations in lead time and taking that into account. 
if we have pretty standard lead times, but our usage varies dramatically, we may use once one a year, and all of a sudden, you know, the next year we're using three, and so on and so forth. We may want to use this one here, which is min ROP for variable usage. Very similar approach, but they're just calculating the safety stock a little bit differently based on the variations that we see. And then there's one last formula here that I've also seen. This one here aligns very closely with the first one, right? But instead of using various things, it'll actually factor in customer service factor, which is your acceptable coverage. And it uses the mean average deviation, which is a variation of uh, standard deviation. Right? So there's a couple different options we have here based on what you wanna do. Most organizations I work with, in all honesty, this is complex enough for them. They keep it simple. They stay here over on the left, the standard min ROP formula. Some of them that are a little bit more advanced have a little bit more time. They'll move into the ones with the variable lead time or variable usage formulas. All right. So we gotta think about which ones do we wanna use when we're setting up our process. All right, I'll pause for a moment. Do we have any questions? Yeah, can you clarify what ROP stands for? Reorder point. Okay, all right. And do you always use weeks as your max lead time? Is there a situation where you would use days? I would always, great question, great question. Yeah. I don't think I clarified it well. So right here, usage per year divided by 365, that's the number of days per year, times our lead time. That lead time should always be in days with these formulas, it should always be in days. Okay, good, good. All right, Um. the other question I have is, back a little bit i don't know if you want to take it now or if you want to hold it's back to the um the forecasting about if what if manufacturers stop yep. providing the part so the question is what about a third party like usoc um where the company has some stocked parts for future use manufacturing stops on that part or equipment what is your recommendation Great question. That really becomes a what guarantee do you have from them that you will have access to those parts in the future? If they're pooling it against a bunch of other manufacturers or a bunch of other uh, companies and you are not guaranteed those, then you have to take that into consideration and you may want to pull them into your own organization or have plans to replace or when it fails, update based on that failure. So for example, we had a whole bunch of old TB Woods variable frequency drives. I don't even know if you can find them on eBay anymore. But what we ended up doing is we had a couple of those for emergencies. But then as others start to fail, we had um, prints already done for a lot of the machinery to just slide in an Allen Bradley drive. So we approached it that way because there's no guarantee we were going to get these TB Woods or even get them repaired. Okay. So, so you had a redundant, redundancy planning. Yes. Mm -hmm. so there's a challenge there though. It takes time and effort and you're stocking two parts in the short term. So it adds some complexity, but it ensures uptime. Can you, uh, this is perhaps a leading question, so you can hold if you want, but since we know that accounting, purchasing, et cetera, is paying attention to the cost factor, can you use that as leverage within your company to get more support for doing good for me? Yes, you can. The challenge is, is you just have to be able to build the business case. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. if you can build it, absolutely you can. And I'll talk to some of the some of the things we've seen with organizations that have gone through this process. Mm -hmm. There is a significant return on doing this. Awesome. Okay. 
I think that's it for now. You can go forward. All right, perfect. So I think, Leah, here's our second poll. All right, what is the biggest challenge to managing your spares? All right, once again, you can only click one, but is it a lack of data, a lack of risk framework and alignment, lack of time to analyze these spares, or a lack of organizational knowledge on managing spares? What do you think it is? Exactly. All right, audience, you know what to do. Uh, you've been awesome so far, so let's see what your answers are to this. You only get one. So think about the biggest challenge to managing your spare parts. And uh, if there are other challenges, you are welcome to add those into the questions because I can imagine there might be a few more. But is your biggest challenge lack of data, lack of a risk framework or alignment, lack of time to analyze spares or lack of organizational knowledge on managing spares and we're almost to three quarters if i can get a couple more votes in there again just pick the one that's the closest to you and then type in anything in the questions tool that you want me to add in to james's feedback to us i'm going to close this now and share the results okay we have 22 percent saying lack of data 9% saying lack of a risk framework or alignment, 28% saying lack of time to analyze spares, and 41% saying lack of organizational knowledge on managing spares. All right, thank you. Now, I don't find this surprising, um, especially the last one. Mm -hmm. For some reason, I and I can't explain this, so if someone on the webinar has the answer to this, please enlighten me. <laughs> Um, but for some reason, a lot of organizations spend a tremendous amount of time and effort on managing materials for whatever they're producing, raw materials, components mm -hmm. for their, that are going into their finished product, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But they completely ignore the spare parts side of things. I don't know why that is, because a lot of the tools and techniques are very similar between the two. Right. right. I just don't. I just don't know why they don't address it. Um, so that last one does not surprise me, although I very much dislike it. Yeah. Um, the lack of data, lack of time, understand that. So lack of data, there's a couple different ways we can go about that. So for example, one of the common things I hear from organizations is we don't have good lead time data and our vendors aren't gonna give us uh, updated lead time for every single part. Well, if, you're, if your purchasing system and your inventory system are tied together, we can get some of that data fairly easily. The PO issue date, the goods receipt date against that individual SKU. And now we start getting data that's real life. When do we place the PO? When did we receive it? We can get our lead time. So we can start driving some of that data that way. And it doesn't take a lot of time once we have the reports to build that out. Lack of time to analyze spares, huge. It takes time, this takes effort. So for there, there's a couple of things that I'm, I'm gonna say is, one, once we understand what we want to do, build a tool. Um, I have an example of a spare parts spreadsheet I can share with anyone that's, who's interested in it, um, but it helps you identify, do we stock, do we not stock? What's the min, what's the max? It's doing all these calculations in the back end. So you're just plugging in some basic data points and it does the rest for you, right? And you can build it more complex, more advanced as you go. The last thing I would say to analyze lack of time is focus on the important ones, the Pareto principle. Top 20%, focus on those first, do a couple a week, that sort of thing. Don't try and do the whole thing at once. Okay, our audience has really chimed in here, James. Are you ready? 
Yes. Okay. Our biggest challenge in is uh, that it isn't staffed at all. Ah, okay. So what I would say to that is if you're having issues with staffing in your storeroom, how many SKUs do you actually have? SKUs, stock keeping units, parts in your system, that sort of thing. SMRP has some great benchmarks on those types of things. I want to say it's 5,000 SKUs per person. So if you have more than 5,000 SKUs and you don't have a full-time storeroom person, we're really missing the opportunity there. Um, they also have some other things around transactions to help staff, help for benchmarking to staff that. Mm -hmm. um, and then with the business case, you can easily justify one person if you have anywhere close to that level of SKUs. That's really smart to use the standards to your advantage there. Okay. Uh, someone else says, in addition to lack of knowledge, there is significant apathy toward inventory management, what you were just calling out. Yeah, and I, the only way I've been able to overcome that is continued education within the organization for fixing it. You know, what is the business case? How is this going to help us? Not just our storm's going to look more organized, but what's the impact on financials, downtime, regulatory, and build those mm -hmm. business cases and start dripping that out over time. As much as it drives me nuts, um, I really think all maintenance managers, engineers should really go through a marketing course or two and a communications <laughs> course because in my experience, most of us yeah. aren't great at selling what we're doing. Yeah. We gotta become good salespeople to build that support for these things. Yep. And actually there's someone saying that, that that number four, lack of organizational knowledge really reflects on the first three. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Someone else says, how about the value of inventory versus raws and packs? value of inventory versus raws and packs mm -hmm. what do you mean by raws and packs i just want to make sure okay. like raw materials questioner why don't you respond back with a little bit more data on that and we'll circle back to you and then the next question for you uh is how do you handle when a manufacturer is bought by another company or they update their part numbers without letting you know how do you manage parts that are equivalent across manufacturers Different part numbers can be used interchangeably, but are not common knowledge. All right, so that is a data quality question. Um, mm -hmm. If you have good taxonomy, and what I mean by that is how we name our parts, how we classify our parts mm -hmm. with attributes and so on and so forth, we can address it through that. Now, depending on the CMMS you're using, some have a parent-child relationship for parts you can set up. So this bearing is all of these part numbers that are interchangeable. Others, we would have to have them defined, but the attributes would be very similar and we can link them, right? So there, that's a whole nother challenge that requires good data, data quality, uh, organizing our spares against the defined taxonomy, that sort of thing. That allows us to really leverage that. And once we have all that sorted out, then we have a much better data set for our parts here to analyze. Now, okay. I can definitely talk about that one offline, but definitely don't have time for that one on this webinar. Okay. So we have a bunch of questions, but I want to check for time. Do you want to keep going and then we'll bring in some of these at the end? Yes, please. Okay. All right. I'm going to so, go back and give you your slides back. There you go. Perfect. So now that we got all this stuff, how do we actually act on it? What do we do about it? So if you want to improve spare parts, we got to do a couple of things. First, we got to classify our spares. All right. And once again, that's going back to, is it active commodity or rarely used? From there, we're going to Pareto the cost, and I'm going to walk through all these in a, in a moment. From there, we're going to develop that risk framework. 
we're going to get approval of that risk framework from our stakeholders right this is not just a maintenance activity we need to have our other stakeholders in there as well we'll analyze our existing spares we'll implement the changes and we'll get that return on investment all right so this is what it's going to look like we're going to go through and we're going to look at all of our spare parts they have greater than 10 per month of usage they're active we're not talking about those right now commodity one per month once again we're not going to work on those right now rarely used less than one a month okay we identified which ones are rarely used from there we're going to Pareto those parts out so I'll give you an example of what I mean we're going to go through those parts and we're going to identify what is our total usage value per year or how much do we have sitting in our store we can do it a couple different ways but what we're going to do here is if these are our rarely used items 2001 through 2010 are our SKU numbers we're going to see that these two here are the largest costs in our storeroom all right so we're, if we focus on these two we can address potentially 81 percent of the storeroom value for rarely used parts so we're going to focus on these two here we're not going to worry about the rest of these these aren't worth our time and effort at this point so when we're doing this whether you're looking at rarely used items active items prioritize your improvements based on biggest value biggest return there's no point in focusing on these ones down here because there's not a huge return so here we're going to focus on the 2001 2002 parts right we address that we address 81 potentially 81 percent on the storeroom right so we're going to address those these are the parts we got to analyze now from there we got to develop a risk framework now this is a simplified risk framework that we have a lot of organizations start with right and we really look at what is the lead time of the part what is the consequence of that stock out and what is the consumption rate right based on this we can start to establish do we want to stock do we not want to stock those types of decisions all right so let's look at an example here if a part has a lead time of 18 days a consequence of five or 50k and we consume on average 10 per year what is the rank of this part so 18 days between one week and one month so we got a b it's 50k so that's a b we use it 10 times per year it's an a so we got a combination of b b a all right now a lot of organizations we work with they will modify these here to suit their organizational needs some will change the consequence of stockouts to different values others will change their lead time because maybe their industry lead times are shorter or they might be longer so they're going to adjust these as needed to their organization if you need to add other criteria in here by all means do so this is just in our opinion a pretty good way or easy way to start so keeping in mind this is a bba part now we put it against our ledger here we can see we got a b b a right here we stock that so now we know this is a rarely used item we want to stock based on the risk framework that we have established you're going to see that there's some others here that are non-stock in those instances, we're going to order on demand. We're not going to stock them, all right? And then we also have the rest here as well, all right? So with this formula and this risk-based criteria, which is a simple approach to it, we have now been able to quantify what do we stock, what do we not stock for these rarely used items. From there, now we just run our formulas against it. But we need to make sure we have alignment on 
those on that risk framework all right if we don't have alignment from operations senior leadership finance that sort of thing every decision we make is going to be questioned but if we have that agreed upon framework anytime something goes wrong is here is the acceptable risk that we laid out we all agreed that if it was under this category or this type of risk we were going to accept it of not having it and so on and so forth now one thing i do want to emphasize very heavily before i move on just because we say it's a non-stock part does not mean our work is done at that point we need to have a plan for every part which means we have to define what are we going to do in the event we need this who's the vendor can we expedite can we borrow from another site so on and so forth we want to have that stuff laid out so we know how to react when that part is not there with the approval of that risk framework, then we can go ahead and do the analysis. So do we? is it a stock or non-stock part? We ask that question. If it's a stock, we calculate the new min or ROP reorder point, calculate the OQ, get our max, and then we evaluate our stock levels against what we currently have. And at this point, we have two options. And to help us solve that, we're gonna conduct an economic analysis. And what that really is is, does the cost of keeping these parts outweigh the cost of buying new when needed? Or, and then that will determine, sorry, what we're gonna do with, or we're gonna dispose or work through inventory. So if the cost of keeping those parts far outweighs the risks and the value of buying new when needed, we're gonna dispose of that stock. And we can do that through transferring to other sites, sales, scrap, et cetera. And we do that because keeping spare parts on our shelves costs us a ton of money. Now, if it doesn't outweigh it, then we're gonna keep that stock and we're just gonna work through it and gradually come down to those new inventory levels that are defined, okay? Then once we've done that analysis, we actually gotta implement the changes. So update the min-max, update the order quantity, determine what we're gonna do and dispose of those parts, all right? Now there's a couple other things we can do to help us manage these. Getting our vendors on board. So someone asked about having vendors keep parts for us, that sort of thing vendors are vital to helping us do this if we can get them to help reduce lead time we can have tremendous improvements in our stocking strategy so for example if we have a lead time of five days we use 12 per year our min right here would be 0.16 we round that up to one right but if that same part has a lead time of 60 days now we got a stock seven 90 days now we got a stock 10. so if we have a 90 day lead time and we can get that down to 40 we go from 10 to one part on hand significant reductions in inventory lead time is one of those things that if we can pull that lever it's going to have huge huge benefits to the organization once we have that we want to calculate the return on investments all right so how much have we reduced the inventory how much have we reduced stock out stock turns have we reduced carrying cost lost production, scrap, so on and so forth. I want to document all that so we can justify that next step, going after the rest of the SKUs or some other SKUs or getting support to help go through those SKUs and that sort of thing, right? So once again, you're just building your business case here. Now, one thing I do want to mention is there's also another piece to calculating the min-max, all right, or calculating the return on investment. There's a carrying cost and purchasing cost within organizations. Carrying costs are really, what does it cost us to keep the parts on hand? Right. So that's the salaries for our storeroom staff, building expenses, lost opportunity costs with those dollars, uh, shrinkage or obsolescence costs, those types of things. 
ordering costs or what does it cost us to process a PO? Now, if we optimize these min-maxes, we reduce what we're carrying or adding in some instances where we need to, it's gonna have an impact on these numbers. But what we know is about 20 to 30% of your inventory value. So if you have a million dollars in inventory, 200 to 300,000 each year is spent to maintain that inventory, most of it going towards taxes. So what some organizations try to do is they try to stock less, just order more frequently. But on average, it's about 75 to $150 per PO to order parts. So if we're ordering parts on a regular basis, we're driving up our administrative costs on the ordering side. So that economic order quantity helps us balance these as well. All right, so we wanna take that into account while we're calculating. Now, in summary, when we go through this, we gotta identify what type of part do we have? Active, commodity, rarely used. We gotta build that risk framework, make sure everyone's aligned. Focus on the vital few. So those top parts are the biggest contributors. Wanna focus on those. We evaluate our stocking levels, implement those changes, and document the ROI. All right, so Leah, I'm open for questions for the next couple minutes. And if we don't have, or if we run out of time, be more than happy to continue to answer any questions offline or after the fact. Do you wanna to roll to your next slide where your contact information is listed? There we go. And you've got a reference page for us. There's a lot of questions coming in about the spreadsheet you mentioned. Is that on that reference page by chance? I don't know if it is, but I can definitely make sure it gets added or they can reach out directly to me and I'll email it to them. Yeah, no, any, anyone who's asked for the spreadsheet, we will follow up with you directly. So no worries there. Um, but just so you know, James, that was a very popular question. We do have some other questions and audience, you are welcome to continue asking questions via the tool because James will follow up with you afterward if we don't have time to get to it live today. So I'm going to go down the list more or less in chronological order. First question for you is how do you account for manually adjusted lead times in your purchasing system? So manually adjusted lead times, that is someone manually having to go update these lead times on a regular basis. Once again, I would focus on some sort of process. For example, if I have ABC classifications for my parts, I would focus on updating those A parts on a fairly regular basis, once every three months, once every six months, something of that nature. Um, C parts, which are way less critical, those would be done maybe once a year. Reason being is if they're C parts, they're not as important. So I don't expect someone to manually update the lead times every single time we run a PO or something like that. I just create some sort of framework where we're doing the more important parts more often, the less important parts less frequently, and just trying to you know, balance the workload that way. Okay, next question. A factor at our plant is a strict month-to-month -month budget where some months we have to hold back on spares and other months we have excess budget. So how does that factor into the equation? That's a tough one because when we need spares, we might not be getting them and that's gonna impact work coming down the line or potential outages down the line, that sort of thing. The big thing with that, as I would say, is you would really benefit from optimizing your spare parts levels across all categories, not just rarely used, active, commodity, that sort of thing. It, you'd really benefit from using those formulas on all those parts. So we're really only ordering what we absolutely need and not just ordering stuff that people have guesstimated the right number to have mm -hmm. on hand. Um, so mm -hmm. you'd really benefit that way. Okay. 
Can you explain SCUs again? SKUs? Uh, yeah, sorry. Yep, stock keeping unit. So stock keeping unit, same thing as an individual item record within your CMMS. Good. And what are some standards that can be followed for best practices for SKU taxonomy? Good question. Um, mm. I have a couple presentations on that that I can easily share with you. Um, there is not, or sorry, there's only two defined standards out there for taxonomy that I'm aware of. One has to do with NATO. So there's a NATO classification for spare parts, mainly to share parts across ships and boats and all that other stuff. Mm -hmm. um, the other one is the UNSPSC, but that doesn't get into the individual details on attributes, manufacturers, that sort of thing. It's more so nouns, modifiers, so bearing, comma, roller at that level. It doesn't get deeper. Um, I have some examples and some things I can share with you offline if you're interested in talking more about that. Okay. Um, let's see if I can understand this question. Is the PO line item cost more important than the PO cost? I think I understand. Um, so the PO cost is what it costs the organization to process that order. So what you don't want to have is have one PO going to a vendor with $5 worth of parts on it because now I spent $150 to write that PO and process it and only to get $5 worth of parts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's where that economic order quantity piece comes in. It helps us strike the right balance for the parts we're ordering between the cost of carrying and the PO cost. Okay. And then I am going to try to ask the raw question again, and this I'm just going to read it to you. This is why business doesn't focus the same amount on MRO spares versus production materials. If you've got 25 mm in MRO, but 500 mm in raw and packaged materials, the financial value isn't considered important. Ah, okay. So yes, so if, we're, if we're working with materials, for example, with raw materials, packaging materials versus MRO materials, Yes, there may not be as many. In my experience, though, generally you have a lot more MRO SKUs or material masters than you would for raw or packaging materials. Um, but what I think is it's out of sight, out of mind. No one cares about spare parts really until there's a breakdown and we don't have it. So that's kind yeah. of why I think it occurs. Um, I don't think it has to do with the volume um, because let's face it, most traditional raw materials and packaging materials we have a pretty consistent lead time, pretty good predictability to those parts. Okay, and in 30 seconds or less, what is your opinion on inventory vending machines? All right, so I think they're value added, but don't overuse them. So depending on what it is, what we're trying to accomplish with them, they can be very, very helpful. If we're trying to provide point of use of certain items or control of certain items, they're great because we know exactly who took them, when it, when they took them, so on and so forth. And we don't have to man that particular uh, location. But okay. not everything needs to go through those. I think, you know, we just got to be pragmatic about it. Okay. The audience is doing a great job of continuing to put in uh, questions for you to answer later. So <laughs> we're going to roll forward now. If you can go to the next slide. Excellent. Okay, so audience, some of you are going to be familiar with our next speaker, Nancy Regan. She is an excellent 
person to learn FMEA from. So it's a very nice complement to what James has just been talking about. So if strengthening your FMEA skills, uh, your failure modes and asset criticality analysis would be a good counterpart to what we've just talked about, then please feel welcome to come to our next webinar on August 4th at 11 a.m. ET and take advantage of some really good time with Nancy. And then next slide, if you would. This is a reminder that after I close the webinar, there will be a slight pause. And please hold on, don't abandon yet, because we'd love it if you could answer the survey. That gives us lots of feedback about today's webinar, as well as what you'd like to see in future topics. And then the recording of today's session will be available on excelix.com within a day or two. So you can go back and listen in full, and then we will respond to you uh, over the next couple of days with additional information, and you've got that reference from James in the meantime. And that's it for today. James, thank you so much for this masterclass. You answered so many questions, really appreciate it. All right, thank you for having me, and I'll be following up with everyone else who I didn't get a chance to answer their questions. So look forward to uh, chatting with everyone else in the, in the future too. Exactly. Stay tuned to Erudicia, you guys. They have got so many great resources. There's always something new coming. So we'll talk to you again. And thank you very much, everybody. Have a great day.